I'm Frederick Gerton, and I'm the filmmaker. And I'm Leilani Farha, and I'm the advocate. And that's, that's the signal that we're actually back. We're back on track. We're back to pushback talks. This is how we zoom in and zoom out in the world, and where we try to uh, deepen and update stories and experiences from, from the work we did with the film Push. And Leilani, you're not anymore the UN Special Rapporteur, but you are the Global Director of The Shift. How is The Shift work going? It's going. Shift, shift work. work. It's like, more, it yeah. is like shift work, I tell you. <laughs> We're working all day and all night. We just concluded our first virtual fact-finding mission to Buenos Aires, and we are hosting our press conference this afternoon. Super exciting. It was amazing. It's a, it is amazing what you can do through technology. We went right into communities and talked to people who'd been evicted, who'd been occupying lands, these incredibly strong women. It was just, it was fantastic. So, so I'm feeling good about the shift, even in this COVID world. That's good. We started this podcast because we felt, I mean, suddenly we couldn't go anywhere. We were in the midst of the launch of the film and we were like okay we have to do something and we started off with some Facebook lives but then we said okay maybe a podcast is is a little bit more stable and people can go back and find uh, and listen to our talks we are now up to what number is this 24 I think 24 maybe I don't, I know. don't know a lot yeah a lot but we yes and we have listeners in 93 countries it's very cool which is Cool, but I think 100 would be even cooler. Well, so, how many countries are there in the on. world? 198 or something. No, 100 and I don't know. So, so yeah. come on, sir. We're, we are, that's a lot to go. <laughs> when we were shooting Push, the summer 2017, I was sitting by my computer. You were sitting by yours. We didn't talk, but suddenly in the Twitter feed and the news feed, we could see a building as a torch in the center of London and we thought shit this is crazy insane and you said directed this is this is what I'm talking about this is how what was your first reaction when you saw this happening the Grenfell building in London tragedy I was in a hotel room when it was unfolding and I started to hear stories about the fact that tenants had been saying that this cladding was dangerous, that many of the tenants were lower income than the rest of the borough, one of the richest boroughs. And I just had this sinking feeling that this was, again, a story that I've been hearing repeatedly, which is low-income people not being listened to by government officials, negligence, a lack of caring of the housing conditions for the poorest people. I went to London. Uh, I, I had a very good partner, Elizabeth Benjamin, who was doing the, the research for us for the film in London at the time. And she went there for almost for a week and talked to a lot of people. And when I came with the film crew, uh, we had a lot of meetings set up. But suddenly... People who had told that they wanted to talk suddenly didn't want to talk because this story was in the middle of one of the biggest cities in the world and the world media was on top of it. So it was crazy 
people said, I'm sorry, Fred, I can't talk because have a look here. And they showed me their, their phones. I have 15 million hits on this interview with me and I have 10 million hits on this interview with me. So people came out from a extreme tragedy entering into like a media frenzy and and it it was really hard and and i my story my mission was different from covering the the accident because we we had a bigger story we had already shot in london we wanted to talk about people being pushed out by the forces of of this new uh, commodification of housing but for a long time it was really hard for me to get to speak to anyone on camera. And then I met a guy who, who was with his dog. And he, he said he had a connection to, to one of the survivors. And, and in, in the end, I got introduced. And then I met Nicholas Burton. And Nicholas Burton was one of... I mean, he lived very high up in the building. He survived. But he was in the building for more than two hours when the building was on it as a torch. And I don't know how, but Nicholas trusted me to for an interview. And now we have Nicholas back as a guest in Pushback Talks. Hello, Nicholas. Nice to see you again. How are you doing? Hi, Frederick. I'm, I'm fine. Thank you very much. Yeah, just trying to, you know, get through. There's a lot going on. It's always a lot going on around Grenfell. But, I mean, uh, I remember our meeting uh, strongly because I think you opened the door for me because my mission was bigger than the fire. It was also about the people of your community being under pressure for for a very long time. And uh, so I'm grateful for the interview you gave to me. You're welcome. Uh, it was an intense moment. This was like a few weeks after the fire. It was crazy. You've been to, you went to a meeting with the prime minister, Theresa May, at the time. You became kind of a part of the the inner group of the of the of the fighting community. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I didn't know what was going to happen to my life, um, as I was just sitting in my, or sleeping in my living room with my wife, on on the night of the fire, and then. Um, you know the the tower went up like a torch, and, um, and but we actually got rescued, and um, we were in hospital. But I once I found out where my wife was, and I I just wanted to leave and go and find her, and then within a couple of days, I was in the maybe the right place at the right time. I had a meeting on the Friday after the Wednesday fire uh, with the Prime Minister. Theresa May, she came down and it was like a closed door meeting um, just with um, some people that were supporting us. I was the only survivor that was actually in the meeting. The community got to hear about Theresa May being there and then um, there was a lot of noise and people upset outside. So she had to be rushed, rushed away. But we continued the meeting on the Saturday. So I went to Downing Street and of course... I had nothing. Uh, my sister bought me some a baby blue T-shirt and a pair of shorts. <laughs> so <laughs> I ended up rocking up at, um, at number 10 down the street. And, um, but we had some stern discussions about um, what happened. She was very focused on myself. And, but we, you know, we had to put it there that things have 
has to happen for the community and for the survivors especially that are just been you know abandoned and it actually was it actually took a bit of time the, the government were very shocked about the the emergency response and we were still out on the street and still not really kind of focused for a few days after the fire um yeah i got put in a hotel so i had to live in a hotel because now everything that i owned had gone uh my my dog um didn't make it i think my seven of my neighbors on my floor didn't make it and of course 51 people my friends and my neighbors you know didn't make it and then just to kind of round it up a little bit because a lot's happened a few weeks into the thing we made a thing called Grenfell United so I was on the committee for Grenfell United that is um and we just went out to find all the survivors and bring us together in unity so we're stronger in numbers and um just to look after each other because people tend to relate to people who've been through the same situation so that took a lot of effort and then we we were running from pillar to post we found an office, very kind, um, the CEO of Universal, who <laughs> gave us an office, and um, and then we started to demand that the government officials and everybody come to us instead of us running around. So we we tried to start demanding answers to to what happened. Yeah, it, it was crazy. It's crazy, and it's been crazy for a very long time. And when when I came, and I think. Because I decided to wait a few weeks because I didn't want to come in and compete with all the news journalists, I thought. So I came like three weeks after the fire, uh, even if Elizabeth, the, the, our researcher, was there earlier on. But what I felt was that you were in the midst of a political spin against you. So the, the spin doctors and you know started to point fingers towards people in the building towards the community you were suddenly you were the greedy ones it was so it was was you've been into a very politicized battle from the from day one and we can't go too deep into this now because there is so much to talk about so i think we should in some way go all the way up till today because there is now a big investigation going on and this is leilani this is something that you as a UN special rapporteur, you you reached out to the U, to, to the British government and said, "You tell me, you want to be a part of the commission?" Yeah. Um, so when they, when the government first announced that there would be some kind of inquiry, they hadn't set the terms of reference. You know, they just said, "Okay, well, we obviously need to have an inquiry." Um, and so I wrote and suggested. Well, I actually wrote an opinion piece in the Guardian that was very widely disseminated and making the case that this was a human rights issue at 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 play here that the human rights of the survivors were really important sort of going forward and of course all of those who perished in the tragedy had massive violation of right to life obviously as well as other human rights, including the right to housing. So I tried to make the case that the inquiry should be framed using human rights, or at least incorporate human rights. Um, 
unsuccessful. But now it happens. Now there is a commission, not with your rights perspective in it. That's right. A two-phase inquiry, as I understand it, Nicholas. Um, the first phase has con concluded, and there's there's a report, and that was more on the technical side of things. Uh, and now we're into the second phase. And um, Nicholas, I'm interested to know if you've been involved in the inquiry, and if you're if there's a moment for people in your situation to give testimony, to to tell your story, and, and how you view the inquiry? Um, yeah, I have been involved in the inquiry. Um, yeah, it's, it's split into two phases. So phase one was about um, the how, how it happened on that night. And the it went very much into the, the response, especially like for the fire brigades, um, rather than the why that came in phase two. So it was very good at the beginning because it actually started with the bereaved families and um, knowing who the people who perished in that fire. Unfortunately, as part of the inquiry, my wife passed away. And so, yeah, she's number, as part of the inquiry, number 72. So when they speak about 72, my wife is the last person because my wife didn't come out of hospital so you see, from one hospital to another, and then, so, but it was very good. But I was very skeptical about the inquiry because I just thought it was a mechanism for the government of the day to close the conversation down. So they'll just every question that we had, they'll say it, it'll go to the inquiry. So the heat was off of them. Reading the report that came out of the phase one was very in depth, and Sir Martin Morbick, the, the chair. He really went into detail about the night of the fire. And so now in phase two, um, I'm a bit more optimistic. But the thing is, I still can't see light at the end of the tunnel about all the other stuff. We can find out all the in-depth detail, but they, somebody has to be held accountable. There were so many mistakes um, that was made. And going back to the Right to the beginning again about our area. Our area is, everybody's area is special, but our area is very special. But we were truly marginalised. The north of the borough, I mean, we're not poor, but they were they were putting us as, as I say, um, people that were had no jobs, immigrants, um, just people scrounging off the state. And the, the whole media circus was focused on that. And it really kind of brought us down. They didn't see how vibrant and wonderful the community that lived in that tower and lived in that, in, in our area. Our area has been uh, a lot of history, especially with migrants coming in from all around the world. And we actually gel very, very, very well. It's, it's a true community, but not into politics a lot, but our lands that we lived on, the, the social housing area and, and the, the estates and everything was a gold mine to to the people who were just um property developers and the council and everything they just wanted to move us on and move us out of that area it doesn't matter about our history or what's happening they just said we want that land we want the and the thing is even if you're rich it's very hard to live in my area our area is probably the most one of the most expensive areas in the world and nearly everything is um that start at a million pounds just for a two bedroom or one bedroom. So a, a little place. So if you're rich and say, yeah, I'm a millionaire, it's still very difficult to live in the Royal Borough, Kensington, Chelsea. And then we have the super rich and now the uber rich. A gentleman just bought a 
a house for two hundred ten million pounds. Um, <laughs> ten, ten minutes from here, yeah. And um, there's there's many two hundred and hundred million pound houses. And when you start digging a bit deeper, is this money that people have? We just don't know where it comes from. I just call it dark, dirty money. And if you've got money just to deposit somewhere because you want to clean it up or hide it, you buy a property in the Royal Borough, Kensington, Chelsea, and you don't even live there. And you just, and the interest, uh, the, the property will go up and you'll make much more money than uh, return than putting your money in a bank. And then, and then your area is known for the Notting Hill Carnival, the, 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 Carib the Caribbean community. And I, I think you told me your your dad came from uh, Santa Lucia in the West Indies to yeah. to drive a, a bus in London. So you are also part of that heritage in some way. Yeah, yeah. My father came over from Santa Lucia, and um, and yeah, it was a, a a very mixed community. We got a lot of um, Spanish, Portuguese, Moroccan, but um, but it is is they've had their troubles in the past, but now is it is a vibrant village, fantastic area, and now. The wealthy like that village kind of vibe and they're just moving the people out and the council they i think they probably own more properties outside the borough on the outskirts of london than they do inside the borough but they just move people on as the rents go up or the estates don't get uh, refurbished and this is the story that was on the table before the fire and then in the fire you've been it was kind of clear that, I mean, that's what the investigation also proves, that they didn't really listen to the people in the building saying that there is a risk for a fire. What are we going to do? And the community was active even before the fire around the same issues. So Leilani, when you've been reading now into the investigation, what can you see coming out? Yeah, I, I mean, just a couple of things um, struck me in the first report, like from the first phase. Um Even though it didn't take a human rights approach, um, I think that the chairperson nailed it when he said, you know, something to the effect of, you know, I'm really interested to know how a very common malfunction of a household appliance could bring down an entire building. I thought that was telling. I mean, he said... Because the fire started in the in the neighbor's little kitchen with some electrical machine going wrong, yeah, wasn't the, it? Yeah, the refrigerator, I think it was. Right, Nicholas? Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so, you know, and that's such a... I thought that was such a poignant thing for, for the chairperson to, to say, like just, you know, very starkly. And uh, I mean, there's so many things that he raises that I thought were was in, was interesting. He said that the the fire brigade, you know, the first responders were very junior in stat, status stature, that they were ill-equipped to handle a complex cladding-based fire. And one thing, like uh, as an outsider, I thought to myself, Nicholas, like, did they send a junior brigade? because of the location of the fire. I mean, it begs that those kinds of questions, I think. You know, as I understand it, residents were told to stay put, that there was a stay put order by this junior fire brigade. Which you all, which you also listened to, didn't you, Nicholas? You also stayed put for, for yes. several hours in your apartment, yeah. So, it, I mean, to the listeners here, we, we're going to, I, I made a, an hour-long interview with Nicholas after the fire, and we're going to post it as a as a separate uh, episode a few days after this one. So, so check out for it. It's a, it's a, Nicholas is an amazing 
honest man to tell his story, and it's it's a it's a chilling testimony. And I think it's important to listen to it. We didn't use it in push because push wasn't about fires; it was about uh, something else. But I mean, you know, when I talk to researchers around fires in social housing, also in Sweden, we have more fires where poor people live. In Paris, there's been a lot of fires in in social housing. You and I went to Chile when on your official mission, and they told us a lot of stories about fires in social housing. So it's it's a it's a global experience that there are more fires if there if poor people live there. I'm not saying that you are poor and your people living in that house in Grenfell were poor because most people were working. Uh, but they were not as rich as the rest of the community because they are. Oh, by by far, the disparity between the uber rich and normal people is the disparity is there for the whole world to see. It is the big difference, and nearly all the people that I know would never ever be able to afford a house. They're living people in their thirties that they're living with their parents because they cannot afford to buy anything in this area, and they will never even if they saved all their wages for the rest of their life, never paid tax, they still won't be able to afford a house. And that's the stark truth that, you know, you see these young um, people that would never be able to, once they move out their parents or something happens, they'll never be able to live in this area. And that's where the disparity is. is um, it's, it's a shame. That was one of the things that struck me when I went to Grenfell and, and met with you and other survivors, was here was a community really committed to living in the community and giving to the community and being part of the community. And I mean, we walked by sports fields and people playing in these sports fields and, and the government was making it so hard for the survivors and those who lived around Grenfell to continue to live there and, and to, you know, to have whole lives there. Meanwhile, it's pretty easy for you know, a corporation with a huge amount of money to just purchase a unit there, not even live there, not contribute to the community. So that disparity really struck me, the the commitment to the borough of, of the folks uh, associated with Grenfell versus these, you know, faceless, nameless investors. Amazing. Um, and, in, and if you look at the map of London and you look at homes purchased from um, tax havens, there is a lot of dots in your neighborhood. It's a lot of homes uh, bought from tax havens. And most of them, I think 80 up to 90% stands empty, which is a, it's a total provocation. It's, uh, it's, and it's just, it's destroying community. It's destroying heritage. And, and, but the cool thing with, with Grenfell United is that you're fighting back and you have made it much harder for them to forget about what happened. And so I guess, are you, you're busy almost every day. It's like oh, still a full-time job to be, to be a Grenfell uh, survivor, I guess. Yeah, it's absolutely. Every day is a Grenfell day. And, and as the second phase of the inquiry is going on and new cans of worms are being opened, and it is astonishing. Before I just lived in a smoke-filled life, like I couldn't see. But now with these major corporations, you'll see what actually they're, they're doing. You know, these are powerful companies. You know, the American things for the cladding. I think they spent like $50 million fighting us 
to remove uh, I think a suit in in America to bring it to England. So they spent fifty million, but they're they're a major major corporation, and they're in with the government and the American government. There's a they. You know they do a lot, so they're huge. What is that? That what is this about? To be, so there is you're actually you want to sue the company who produced the cladding. Is that the story? Yeah, because it's a product liability. The the thing is, they 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 make these products and they sell them around the world. They're multi multi billion pound organizations, and the thing is now that we're finding out that they've cheated. That the products, what it, what it says on the tin is not exactly what it is. Now they're trying to protect themselves. So the installation companies and the cladding companies, they, they've done some very dodgy, dark things to sell their products and to, you know, get certificates and, and sell it all around the world. The cladding that they put on Grenfell is banned in America. It's banned in Germany and France, but it was not banned here, you know. So we've got to talk about the regulations and everything. But these are huge organizations and trying to, as a, a small group of survivors, trying to fight them. This is, it's criminal behavior, isn't it? it? It is, yeah, it's absolutely criminal. And it's all coming out, hopefully, in the inquiry. And even the, the cladding company, they, 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 they're using little laws, you know, like we want to speak to some of their directors, but they're based in France, some of them, and they won't come because they said there's a, a, a little law that they've only used once since 1959. And they, they say they, they can't diverge any information because they, they'll be sued by the French government or so. So it's, they use it every single way, but we try our best to, to keep it relevant because it's a global thing. And this, their products are on, a global scale all around the world. I went to places uh, on my travels. I went traveling for a year. And so I went to Melbourne where there was a tower block fire. I went to Beijing where there was a CCTV towers had a fire. I've been to Dubai where the torch um, tower was on fire. Um, I've been to these places around the world where significant fire. So there's been warnings about this systems but now it's come to in full headlamps exactly what's happening. So the world is paying attention now, and they just want to keep it local. Say, oh, just keep it within the in London, and but it's actually on a global scale. This product that they're 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 doing, and we still have, have over three hundred plus tower blocks with this cladding on, with this installation on uh, around the UK. So people they're going to bed at night and and saying. It's tonight, tonight that there'll be a Grenfell two, wow. and it's, it's it's quite shocking. To also to our listeners, how how can people find out more information? Is do you have any channels to recommend? Is that the Grenfell United webpage or? Uh, yeah, we got we got GrenfellUnited.org, and um, but there's there's so much going on. We we've, we've got the inquiry going on. That's broadcasts, you know, Monday to Friday. To find out more information as well, and to catch up on the information, there's also the BBC Sounds podcast as well every Friday, that gives you much more in-depth detail. But yeah, is um, the the whole world is is watching, and 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 thanks to your work, I would say also, uh, Leilani, what do you say? Yeah, a couple of things. One of the, I just wanted to mention, as you were talking, Nicholas, about the cladding and how it's being used worldwide, and it's and how dangerous it is. One of the things that I noticed in the phase one of the inquiry was the conclusion that not only is 
aluminum composite material, which is what that cladding is, ACM, not only is it flammable, it's a fuel for fire. So once it ignites, it is an accelerator for fire. So, I mean, it's just mind boggling when I'm hearing you say that this cladding is still up on buildings in the UK and in other countries. It is mind boggling. It's not just that it's flammable, right? Um, The other thing um, I wanted to say is that uh, I was very surprised to learn at the very end of my mandate as special rapporteur that there's like a, a big movement in the UK around this cladding. So all the people living in these buildings that Nicholas mentioned have kind of banded together. No doubt, Nicholas, you had something to do with that. But um, <laughs> I um, I ended up writing to the government of the United Kingdom to say, hey, this is a big problem. And it's it's not just ACM cladding, there's other materials that are very dangerous that have been used in social housing um, estates and or uh, council estates. And so the government wrote back um, and said, you know, that they have thrown a lot of money at this. But Tenants are telling me that the money that the government has given isn't enough. It's been targeted to buildings that are 18 stories and higher so that shorter buildings don't get covered by this uh, funding to get the cladding off, that some tenants are being told they have to take the cladding off or owners are being told they have to take the cladding off themselves and it's very expensive to do that. And so it seems like there's still a bit of a mess uh, on that on that side of things. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, so if a building's over 18 metres and it's got the cladding on, that, it, that needs to come down. So it's 18 metres. And they, of course, they falsified documents to say that they can put these products on buildings over 18 metres, but that's to do with the regulations and the approved document B. But yeah, people are living in these tower blocks. And if they go, they if you were in the midst of trying to sell your flat and your flat has a value... If you have cladding on your on your tower, the value of your your house that if you're lease or an owner is zero. The insurance company won't won't do anything, and these people are now trapped with no equity, no everything in you know they invest in a home, and now it is actually zero. So the government even say that they've invested one point six billion pounds to take down the cladding. But the, the things for statistics say they need at least 15 billion to start taking down this cladding. But we're in the midst of a pandemic, and, yes. you know, the, and everything and, and Brexit. Yeah, Nicholas, we actually, the three of us met in, in London early March for the theatrical release of Push in the UK. And we were doing press together. It was really nice. We're hanging out, we're talking to audience. And then you were supposed to go to, on a tour around the UK and talk to audiences around uh, in yeah. about the content of the film, but of course also about your personal experience. What is this in the film that, that made you really want to, to work with it? What, did, what did it tell you? Did you learn anything new for your work? Yeah, but um, I was astonished because um, when we first met, I wasn't actually, you know, the marginalization of our community, but I didn't know how big, but it is the film is one of the most important product films that has ever been made because we are 
without your work, we are blind to to know what is happening. This land grab, this marginalisation of communities, this you know people just being really treated badly with their human rights. So the film is just so important. So I just said, okay, I'm I'm busy doing all these things with Grenfell and fighting for the cladding and the other stuff and and our rights as well. But this was important as well because this is on a global stage about what's happening. Um, with these major, major corporations that they've got more money than than a lot of, um, you know, countries. <laughs> so um, yeah, so I, I just felt it is so important to to be be part of this. I'm so honoured to be part of this, and I wanted to go around the country to explain to people that come on, let's get on board with with change. Like I said, seen um, in some of your things, and I'm just by myself, and I'm trying, to, but. <laughs> In numbers, in numbers, when everybody, this is so important, we can make change. And from one person to to a lot of numbers, people can now speak up and start saying, hey, that's actually, that's happening to me. And that's why your voice is so important. Uh, of course, not only in the UK, also around the world. We We met like a year after the fire. Your wife has passed away. And then you your mom passed away and then you had a an open heart surgery you were kind of beaten and you weren't you were staying with a friend the friend who actually got me in contact yeah. with you uh because you didn't want to stay alone but then you yeah. decided to to take a year off and you traveled the world and wherever you went you entered into the the fire brigade and you talked to them about Grenfell so in some way, your your knowledge was growing and growing and growing. And now you're almost like a global expert on on this. Uh, the, the fire changed your life in, in so many ways. I mean, I, I went, I bought, I drank a bottle of wine and, and, I, and I thought, I need to go away. You know, I open heart, my wife died, my mom died, my dog died, my open heart surgery, the loss of my house, all the funerals, all my friends. And so, yeah, I... I went to 23 countries over nine months, from Addis Ababa to Queenstown in New Zealand. Every single fire station that I visited um, knew about the fire or had some special training on tower blocks. I went to Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, and I t on the first day I turned the corner, and then there was all these fire engines, and they were spraying the Sheridan Hotel, tall building, and people were all lined up outside. So I went to the commander, I said, what is happening? He said, oh, we're doing tower block evacuation training. So, <laughs> his jaw dropped, but I said, I'm actually from Grenfell Tower. I said, this is what we're doing. We're we're doing, there's things around the world, you know, the, the, there's big things in Australia, New Zealand. And yeah, it was very interesting to talk to these fire officers. But I also did other things. I mean, I went off to, where'd I go? Brooklyn. Um, to a charity called Make the Road, where they were gentrification for in um, in Bushwick in Brooklyn in New York, and they were putting people out on the streets. Uh, went to San Francisco, downtown San Francisco, and there were so many homeless people. And I mean, these are people who had their properties before, but the tech people with the money now want the bay views and everything in San Francisco. I went to East LA uh, Community Corporation. 
um, a community of like Spanish-speaking people that are being evicted, and they were trying to give them legal information. I went down to Skid Row, oh my days, in downtown LA. I've never seen anything like this. And I went to a charity called LA Can, and there's thousands upon thousands of people living on the streets on tents. And the guy informed me that they've actually spent over $1 billion in that area. I said, where? There's free toilets for all these people. Where? Oh, to police the area. They spent the billion dollars to police the area, but not to sort out the... But they will all be moved on because LA's um, has won the Olympics. And so they'll all be moved on. And I went on a march in Inglewood, where in the, in near the airport LAX. And they've got a thing called a section 60, 60 day notice, get out of your house, don't care if your kids are going to school or you work around the corner, you don't have a job, you get out. And we marched around the streets to, and the, the guy actually stopped that, that notice happening uh, because of the amount of people. This is what we talk about in pushback talks. It's all these stories. Uh, you, you you listen to to our podcast also, I understand, Nicholas. Absolutely. It is absolutely amazing. He's got, he's got some amazing people coming on as well. And and the thing is, it's so important because it's, it's a lot of people just think it's me. Oh, I'm just, I'm alone fighting. But on this is a global thing and people can understand that, no, we can all challenge these, these people together. You know, there's people, corporations that are doing it to us. And they 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 got loopholes and and money to throw everywhere. They say like money is cheap. It's it's insane. So it's that's why we want to push back, <laughs> and that's we. I mean, we are not many, but we are trying to keep pushing back through information and knowledge. I think that's and that's what you are doing also because you are now a source of of knowledge uh, that people can come to. And I think if you want to organize more screenings of push in the UK, you should also contact Nicholas because he can also speak to you let's let's go back and, and listen to Nicholas from from push just a short uh, little memory of the of, of your voice in the film but somebody banged hard on my door and then I opened the front door and there's just a blanket of black smoke so I just closed the door very calmly thinking uh, oh there's a fire Possible. Jumped up, up. An arm up to about here come through the smoke and kind of grab my wife and then another arm on the other side come to, to kind of grab myself. And I said, how about my dog, my dog? The officer said, no, I'm sorry, we're going to have to go. So I just looked at my dog and I, it's just an amazing... My dog's my like my child. It's um, a two-year-old beagle called Lewis Hamilton II. But he chose his own name. We give him the options, and he liked Lewis, so so he was. Yeah. Thank you. That was Nicholas Burton from Push, and and I must say we've met audiences with the film all over the world, and people always get very touched by your story. And then in the middle of this, they also laugh about how your dog <laughs> got his name so there is a lot of yeah. there's a lot of passion connected to your voice nicholas and in a few days we will put out an extra episode of of uh, pushback talks with the almost full interview that i did with you just after the fire and and listen to it because it's it's an important testimony of someone who survived from the floor 20 of that building 
So how are we how are we wrapping up this? It's like it's so emotional. We could keep so talking emotional. forever. I have. The, I But mean, I, I am one one of the viewers of Push who has that complete. I get completely choked up. I, I've of course seen the film. I've seen you, Nicholas, many 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 times, and I still get of course completely moved and choked up. And then I laugh at your dog's name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bless him. He's um, oh. yeah, but he did choose. He did choose it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's um, yeah, it's it's really weird. But I just want to like just tell people, you know, they need to, you know, when you're knocked down, you just need to get up one more time. You, you can't stay down. You need to be aware of what's happening, and you need to speak up. People let things happen to them, and then think, oh, what happened? You need to speak up because. Communities are being eroded. These these corporations are really taking over. Just within 15 minutes of where I live in central London, there's major, major constructions going on, but they're not affordable. They're going to build just five minute walk for me. They're going to build 25,500 homes, houses, and they're not available for the local community. 10-minute walk down the road, White City. The starting price for 500 square foot, which is very small, is £765,000 for a, how, a flat that you need a shoehorn to get into. And just 10-minute drive from here is Battersea. And this is £8 billion of Malaysian money. And it's all focused for global investment um, equity firms to plough their money into it, whether it just be a ghost town. But of course, money from, you know, these big centres of, you know, Hong Kong, Shanghai, Singapore, they, they, they flood money in. It's also stolen money from the people of those countries, you know, so it's like, it's, that's the worst thing. It's like, it's the, it's the, pe people are suffering also in these places. So it's, it's a, uh, And of course, money in some way doesn't have a flag, you know, it's like it's just a mixture of, of wealth that is plowed in everywhere, you know. And they, they use these tools, you know, and, and you know, with, even with Blackstone as a, a kind of in-between thing of our pension monies and tools. Blackstone, 329 billion, their global real estate. <laughs> That's a big thing. And just in London alone, I've got, um, you know, they just spent four. 0.7 billion buying up all the student accommodations in Britain. So all the students, you know, now live in a, you know, a thing by, run by an equity firm. Um, they spent 1.5 billion on buying up all the, like the arches under the, the railways of London. So all these little businesses, garages and cafe shops and everything, you know, they'll come under pressure to, because people want to return on their, on their investment. This is Blackstone. Yeah. Yeah. Network Rail sold it off cheap. Yeah. So that it's, there's lots and lots of things happening. That's, and I think that's what you are doing now, Nicholas, you know, looking around your own neighborhood. That's what we all should do. We should look into and map who are the new owners of our, our, our cities. Because by doing that, we also understand the forces that are making our lives more complicated. So I, I think it's, that's exactly the, the steps we have to take. Map it, and then, of course, speak out. That's what you're also doing. That's what we are doing together, Leilani in pushback talks so in a few days there will be an episode out with with the nicholas full story from after the fire and leilani you keep going out there in the world with your the shift and and we keep fighting doing 
Pushback Talks. And if you want to support Pushback Talks, how should you do, Leilani? We have a Patreon account, and you can become a Patreon. Just a few dollars a month. Give us gifts. Frederick and I, the truth is, everyone out there, Frederick and I like gifts. Don't we, Frederick? Yes, we do. We do. We do. <laughs> Friends, uh, a big hug coming. I, I, can, I don't know if you can feel it, but I'm trying to hug you. And I know it's, it's you know, you're in Ottawa, Canada, and you're in London. I'm in Malmo, Sweden. So it's like it's... But we're... We're taking a little hug here, yeah. and 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 talk soon. And thank you, Nicholas, for being You're welcome. Being a guest, yeah, uh, thanks, Nicholas. Thanks, Isani. Thank you, Frederick. Goodbye. Bye. Take care. Bye. Pushback Talks is produced by WG Film. To watch Push, visit pushthefilm.com. You can also support us by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com/pushbacktalks. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again next week.